Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We kind of come to this like narrative section now where there's a bit of a, I guess it's not really a standoff. I guess it's sort of a standoff. They kind of have like a little exchange, a little, uh, a little issue uh, to some degree. And, uh, and in typical fashion, you know, Jesus doesn't really ever give like a straightforward answer. He like kind of is really great at asking questions back and telling stories. And uh, this is a, a really wonderful way that Jesus accomplishes more than a simple answer can, um, you know, can really bring. Uh, when we tend to give simple answers, we want further clarification. But Jesus gives us so much more as we, as we look at the, at the text. And, and what, what is being said here, it's easy to, to kind of take this story that we are looking at this morning and to say, okay, well, there's like, you know, there's some people who are good and some people who are bad. There's a way to be where like you should be kind and, and, and love others and care for other people um, and, and help them, um, that you should do these things. But, but remember, this is a story, not just this text this morning, but, but, the, but the collection of this gospel is to bring about confidence, right? He writes to bring about confidence in the things that you have been taught. There are things that you've heard, things that you've been taught uh, from the beginning, he says you should trust and you should believe, and this is one of those things that, that is uh, here to help us sure up our beliefs. Because you could take this story, you could take the story and you could back away and, and you could, you know, almost see this made into like a, a short story or, you know, uh, become a little bit more of a nuanced uh, take that turns into a feature film. You could see this turned into uh, a... Uh, a situation where um, this is brought out into uh, a, a modern TV show where, you know, this could be put together in, in, a, in a play um, and can be seen in various uh, modes of entertainment. And, and it could very well do that, uh, be that because it is a story that brings uh, uh, this message. But the message is not one of be a good person. The message is not one of, of be kind and compassionate. There's some guys who are compassionate and there's some people who are not. There are some people who have a bad attitude and some people who don't have a bad attitude. The message is not that, right? Because if it was that, then it would just be a random story. But the, but the story of the Bible is supremely Christological. It is supremely Christocentric. It is all about Jesus. So what is it about this story what is it about this particular text that helps us say, as God's people, we have got to live in such a way, and the only way that you can do this story, the only way that you can process this story correctly, is if you look at it specifically through the lens of, this is revealing Jesus and how his, his people should be. This is helping us see him more clearly what he's done and accomplished for us. What, what he is calling people to is not possible apart from him. And so it's not just about being a good person. There are plenty of other people who I, I know in my life who are more kind and more compassionate and they're, they're doing more to help people who have been robbed. And if you want to take it in a one-for-one -one situation, there are plenty more people that I know. 
But what is the motive? What is the, the, the background there? What is the, the heart behind that? Oftentimes, you know, we would even say that, well, they're doing it from a good heart. They want to help people. They want to care for people. They want to meet people's needs. Okay, we'll take that a little further. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to, why do, you want to do that? These people who, who don't know God, who, who don't trust in Christ for salvation, why do you want to do those things? Well, because it's a good thing to do, but why is it a good thing to do? Well, it's a good thing to do because it's nice to take care of people. Why is it nice to take care of people? Well, because it's nice to think of other, why is it nice to think of other people? Like, you can keep going down this road, and you get to a point to where uh, it, it eventually leads to, like, what this says about you, that other people like you, other people think you're great. So you have to then live in such a way that people are liking you all the time, and if anyone is ever upset with you for any reason, well, you know, you got to go fix that. You're trying to live in such a way to where you're trying to extreme, uh, put extreme balance or, or like put it out of whack and, and to, to, to tip the scales in the, in, in the favor of being a good person. But the problem is, is no one's really looking for good people. We like good people. We're, we don't have a problem with that. The problem is that uh, we are looking to see, and what God's looking for is perfect people. Good is not enough. Great is not enough. Excellent is not enough. Perfect, that is enough. Perfect is what the goal is. The, the problem is, is that if you have one misstep, you've lost perfection. If you have one stumble, you've lost. If you have one thought in the back of your mind that I hope other people are watching me do this great thing, or, you know, maybe I should share this story with other people about these great things that I did, or, you know, if it becomes about, about you at, at any point, then, then you've lost it. You've stumbled, and no longer, it's no longer perfect. It's been tainted. It can't purely be from this, oh, I want to be a good person, a pure heart. That purity is gone, because it's about you. All of a sudden, it's, it's not about serving others, it's about self. It's selfishness. And so we have to read the story in such a way that Jesus is unlocking for us. Because the, the people who are in the story, they have ways to be perfect. They have ways to relate to God. They have ways to be accepted in society. They have these uh, structures that are already in place. And Jesus unlocks these things. He gives us a new key, a new way to understand. So let's jump into the text. He starts, uh, Luke starts for us setting the scene. And he says in verse 25, And behold, I love that, look, behold, attention, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now, these are the people who like to get up, lawyers, right? Because they're like, these are the masters. These are the people who know the most. They're the most well-read. They've got all the details. These are the people who are going to want to show off. These are the people who are going to want to be like, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in right standing here, so I want to prove my point. So let me just kind of step out here into the limelight and kind of show you that I really know what's going on. And he, so we find this description. Behold, a lawyer uh, stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what? shall I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? So he gets up. He wants to, to challenge Jesus. He wants to test him. Look, the reality is this. We are all testing Jesus all the time because he's telling us one thing and we're like, I'm not really sure if I believe you. I don't really know about that. Right? And the reality is, is that you, you're welcome to bring your, your challenges to Jesus. 
go ahead and be like, I'm not really sure about that. He'll deal with it. He'll take your, your questions and he'll take your perspectives. But do you have ears to hear what he's saying back to you? Bring all of your tough questions, bring all of your hardships, and bring all of your difficulties, right? You want to try to, you want to, try to come and stump Jesus? He knows everything, so he's going to be able to help you. He's going to meet your need. He's going to deliver precisely what you're looking for if you're truly looking. If you really want to know. If you really want to understand the answer to your question, if you really want to hear, he's going to give it to you. Bring these things. And so he says, uh, he shows up and he asks this question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So, seemingly, uh, a simple question here, but it's actually pretty, pretty complex. He wants to know, uh, what's the deal here? What do I have to do to um, ha- have eternal life? As he, as he kind of asks this, though, in our modern-day context, we kind of just think about it like this, like, is he looking to find out, like, am I in? Am I, am I, am I in God's kingdom? Can I, uh, am I guaranteed of being in? Is that the question he's asking? Because what do you mean by inheriting eternal life? Or is he asking, right? And I, and I think uh, this is really the question that we should all be asking. A broader question, am I receiving all that God has to offer? All that God has to offer us. Not just being in, but taking advantage of everything that's there. So, uh, think about it this way. A lot of times... We just kind of want to make sure that we have the insurance that we're in. I got the ticket. I made it onto the boat. I'm here. Right? But imagine for a second that uh, if we want to use it by a really terrible analogy, but one that I think will kind of make the point, that the kingdom of God is like a cruise ship. Right? You get on a cruise ship, everything's included. You pay the one big price at the beginning. You got the ticket. You get on the boat. You're running free. You get everything that's there. There's a couple like little things, but we'll throw that out for the sake of our analogy. Pretty much, by and large, all-inclusive. But for some people, all they want to do is they want to get on, and they just want to kind of like wander around and be like, okay, well, like, yeah, I made it in. I'm here. But, but the reality is, is we should be getting on. We should be walking around and being like, okay, I'm going straight to where the crab legs are. We need some of those. Then I'm going to go to where the concert is. It's going to be ex- excellent, right? I'm going to find like a really plush room. We're not just getting on and standing there like, you know, like, all right, everyone else is having a good time. That's not the goal. The goal is to take advantage of all the things, the rights and privileges that belong to you as a member of his family. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on the peace that comes when you realize, like, oh, I'm allowed to, to get everything here. I'm allowed to touch everything here. I'm allowed to be in, in this place. This is one of the reasons why um, uh, our, our home is kind of structured the way that it is, right? We welcome you guys all in, and basically it's like you're, if you made it in the door, you have free run of the place, right? You, you can go in, look in the fridge, grab cups, move about, ha- kind of, it, it's there to say, you're here, you belong, you're part of the family. You're welcome to explore, you're welcome to, to move things around, to pull out chairs and, and participate in the life. We're there in such a way so as to, to be inclusive in that nature. 
And so this guy's asking, like, what do, what do, like, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? He wants to be sure that he's going to earn it. Now, Luke tells us that he, this is a test for Jesus. He wants to see if Jesus is going to correctly answer this fundamental question. How am I saved in the final resurrection? How do I have this promise of eternal life? Now, Jesus responds back with this question to the lawyer, which is brilliant. He tells him in verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, the law is considered the, the revealed will of God, right? This is what they had to work with. This is what God has said about how his people ought to relate to him. And so by responding this way, Jesus does uh, two things. And he does a couple more things, but we're going to stick with two for, at the moment. Two, number one, he establishes himself as someone who is biblically based, this isn't my thoughts. This isn't my opinion. This isn't just something that I'm making up as like random morals, like here's what you have to do. He pulls this uh, lawyer back into his own text, his own tradition. He's like, I'm not just going to shoot from the hip here. I'm not going to say some things about being a good person. I'm not going to say some things about balancing the scales. He says, what does the scripture say? Why don't we take a look? What do you think? He sends this lawyer to their shared source of authority. He brings them back. He says, here's the deal. I want you to understand that we are working from the text. This isn't about the oral tradition of the rabbis. This isn't about, you know, your opinion. What does it say? So he does these, he does these two things. He establishes himself not as a radical, but as someone who is working within the traditions that are there. Uh, but then he, he moves away from the oral um, communication that would have been practiced at that time uh, and anchors his uh, response in their shared source of authority. Now, this is a, a stroke of brilliance uh, in, more than, uh, in more than one way here because now the lawyer, he's just like a little bit pumped up because he's like, well, this is my area of expertise. Like, I'm going to knock this one out of the park. Like, I got this. Like, I could give you the most accurate answer. And he does. He, he pulls two texts that are together, one from Leviticus and one from Deuteronomy. And he smashes them together in, in, in kind of this uh, commonly recited uh, piece of scripture at the time. And, and he responds in this way. Now, this is both uh, something that Jesus affirms, but also this guy doesn't really realize he's holding himself accountable uh, with his own words here. So here's, here's what happens. Verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he takes this kind of section of the great commandment, um, in, in uh, of these two passages in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 smashes them together it essentially comes down to this love God and love people love God, love people now the first point of it the first section love God is he, he, he speaks to it as the totality of the person right 
he quotes the scripture that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. So four kind of areas there that you are called to love God with. Every area, every aspect of your life, with your emotions, with your, with your uh, consciousness, with your ambition, with your drive, with your, uh, and the reality is too, it's not saying that everybody has to have um, the same amount of capacity for all of these things. Some people are going to be more emotional than others. Some people are going to have uh, more drive than others. But it's saying whatever emotions and whatever drive that you have, they ought to be 100% focused on loving God with those. Love God with your emotions, with your consciousness, with your drive, with your intelligence, or, or, or your cognitive abilities. Whatever it is that you have, 100% full speed with what you have. What has been entrusted to you, make the most of it. It's not saying that everybody has to have the same amount of drive or the same amount of emotion. We're not trying to be uh, match all each other on emotion. We're not trying to match each other on, on uh, you know, intelligence or cognitive ability. We're not trying, no, that's not the goal. The goal is whatever God has given you, whatever he's entrusted you with, that the totality of your person should be focused on loving him. So nothing escapes. You're not compared against other people. It's what have you done yourself with what God has entrusted you with. So you have these things. And then he merges this other text um, from Leviticus that he mentions in parallel that expresses devotion to God in how you treat other people. So love God and love people. If one loves God, then one should love other people. That should spill out into love of neighbor, those who are around. So here's what Jesus comes back with as this man responds, verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, I love this because this is a really uh, great response. A lot of us, when we hear this back, we, we just want to hear this guy's back, but with them all, all of a sudden, like, we want to come in with, like, all these qualifications. Like, I hear what you're saying about love God with all your heart, strength, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, but, like, here's the deal. You also got to, Jesus doesn't even do any of that. He just says, like, yeah, that's basically what you said. Yep, what you said is right. He just, it's a straight affirmation. You have answered correctly. He approves of this answer because as understood correctly, as it's understood, it's an expression of allegiance and devotion to God. As you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, if you do that, Jesus says, you will live. Yeah, that makes sense. He doesn't ask the man whether he is doing it. He just says, do that, and you will live. Like, that, that's the key. He does emphasize that it needs to be done. It's not enough to just know that that's what you're supposed to do or to know that the answer is that. But he gives this command, do this and the promise. You will live. Do this and you will live. Now, here's where it comes down to it. Because he's going to say, well, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm doing it. 
You're like, why are you saying do this and you live? Are you assuming that I'm not doing it? Well, like, why, why are you mentioning this, Jesus? What's going on? Don't you know that, like, I'm a good person? I'm a lawyer. I'm a, I'm, I'm a scribe. I'm a keeper of the law. I know all the good things you're supposed to do. I know, I know you're supposed to be a good person. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's not content to just, to just let it go. And be like, okay, thanks, Jesus. Like, that's some good insight. Remember, he's testing Jesus. This is his point here. Now he wants to, he, now Jesus says, oh, you're right. Yeah, that's, that's how you do it. He's like, oh, okay, well, Jesus just told me I'm right. But now I just want to make sure that I get my, uh, you know, double put-ups here. I want him to tell me, you know, I'm just crushing it. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? He's got a, a, an answer in mind, I'm sure. In his context, in his mind, in his understanding, the restrictions that were placed on the Jewish people were to love other people of the covenant. So, like, that was it. Like, just as long as you're like, oh, this person is 100% for sure in God's family, like, that's the only person that I need to love, right? And, there, and even within that, there were, there were, like, more specific limitations, so, in effect, the question, the question is this. Uh, Jesus, I know you said to um, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor. So, when he says, who is my neighbor, he's really more coming back and saying, well, like, uh, well, how do I find out who are the other people who are a part of the covenant so I can make sure that, like, I'm doing a good job with those people? Like, how do I, like, when I go out in the world and I find out, how do I, like, track those people down? So he already has a perspective of uh, exclusion in mind. Remember, he's trying to, to justify himself. He wants to soften this demand that Jesus is making and, and not feel the obligation that's being put forward there. But Jesus doesn't allow this uh, responsibility to be removed. This guy's looking for the minimum amount of obedience that is required, but Jesus is asking for total obedience. This guy's asking, he just wants to be on the ship. He's like, what do I got to do to just, just like barely eke it in, barely make it in? Jesus is like, I'm trying to teach you how to, to be on and to take advantage of all the rights and privileges, to flourish, to have all of the goodness that God intends. And so Jesus tells him a story about this guy who gets robbed. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So we got this story about this guy traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He would have gone, uh, it's, like a, it's like a pretty long journey. It's about 17 miles long, uh, and had a reputation for being a pretty a d dangerous spot. It's basically kind of like that um, 
it's basically kind of like that sketchy spot in uh, in Star Wars where they're going through and like all the sand people are up on the uh, on like the ridges and stuff and they're kind of going through this really like crazy area uh, with like all these caves on the side. This is basically like what happened here and like robbers would hide in these caves on the side. And so uh, as a traveler would go through, they would be unsuspecting and then they would come out and get taken advantage of. And uh, in this case, we're told there are some, some robbers um, that caught this guy who was traveling. We don't know who it is. We're not told anything about the guy who's traveling. We just say like there's a guy. A man, a generic man, a nobody. He's going down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. And he goes through this area. Um, and he ends up in a serious state. He's robbed, stripped, beaten. Uh, they take everything away from him. He's left for dead. He's fighting for his life. And then we find this guy just laying there kind of barely alive. And his only hope is that someone would pass by and find him and rescue him. Jesus continues the story in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So as there's this man in dire need, as he is holding on to life, there's a man who has an opportunity to help him. The first guy who comes along, Jesus calls him a priest. Here is someone who would have been understood by the lawyer, by all who were hearing this story, that this is someone who is God's servant, who is ministering in the temple, who represents holiness and purity, who is a mediator, and when the priest sees the man, he, he passes on the other side of the road. He sees him at a distance, and he's like, oh, I'm at a better, like, move over to the side there. There's something, I'm not really sure what's happening there, but I'm not going not gonna to look at that. I'm going to uh, just move, move away, ignore that. Now, over the years, if you've, if you've heard this passage before, uh, there's been, like, a tremendous amount of, like, commentary about, like, oh, well, you know, he, he didn't want to, like, the, you didn't know this guy was dead, and so he didn't want to touch, like, an unclean body, and, like, there's, like, all these, like, things that people are, like, speculating on, like, what the deal is with, like, why did he not help him, and, like, I, it just... Like, it feels like there have been books, like, written on, like, why did this guy not get helped by the priest? The reality is, is, like, Jesus doesn't even care. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't say, because it doesn't, it's not really relevant to the story. There's plenty of, of reasons why it could have been the case, and plenty of, like, rebuttals to those reasons that are, like, really strong uh, to say, like, here's the allowances that we're allowed to help people, and this and that. But there's no motive that's given in the text. Jesus isn't concerned for like, like that. He's not saying, well, you know, he didn't, he, he avoided him because he, he doesn't even go there. The point is that this guy sees him, and he doesn't help. Verse 32, we got the second person who passes. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So a second 
a Jewish religious leader comes down the road again. Now, he's described as a Levite. This guy isn't a priest. He's not a, a member of Aaron's family, but he's just a member of the tribe of Levi. So he would have uh, had uh, other tasks as, uh, that were relevant to the work of the temple, that were relevant to the work of the priests. You kind of think of him as like an assistant uh, to the priests. Um, and so he goes through, and he sees this guy, and he too passes to the other side. He's like, okay, well, like that's, I'm not really uh, on board there. And he moves aside. Now, you and I are like hearing this and we're like, okay, like, cool. Like, to, like, like so far the story tracks, like Jesus is saying like, love your neighbor. And there's two people who are not really like loving this guy, whoever this, you know, guy is. But for this lawyer, all of a sudden, this is getting real serious. Because what happens here, he's somebody, remember, he's a master. He's a master of the text. He's a master of the law. So now he has not just one, but two witnesses. Two witnesses. This would have been relevant to him. You had to make a judgment with two witnesses. If you ever had two witnesses who witnessed the same thing and took the same action, there was a condemnation that was being pronounced. It was a, a, a judgment that was being ruled. By two or three witnesses, a judgment is to stand. And so Jesus brings out these two people from the same area, from the same region, from the same position, and he brings them out and trots them out to the lawyer so that he can be like, well, these two people who were pretty important, uh, they are saying, yeah, this guy's not really worthy of help. Uh, there's nothing we can do for him. We don't really care to help him. And so really, probably, uh, this is the type of thing that nobody should really contribute to. This would have, have, have got this guy's attention pretty seriously here. But then the, but then the next bit of it is even, is even more radical because the theme that he's picking up on is now this. Okay, so basically the long and short of it is the elites, they don't really want to help. Uh, these are the, the elevated people in society. And so perhaps this is a job for just a regular person, a lay person. Right? Maybe the, maybe the next person who comes along will help. And it's just going to be like a regular Joe. And so it's like the way that regular people can serve the Lord is by uh, doing the things that the, that the elites don't want to do. This is kind of the thinking, the legal thinking that this guy would have had in mind. But Jesus, Jesus deviates even further than that. He's about to mess with this guy uh, pretty hard here. He continues with the third person. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So now he brings in this, this third person. And for the, for the Jews, the Samaritan was like the least respected of persons. They were considered, you know, like, uh, like dogs. They, they, people equated like uh, spending time and eating with Samaritans, the same uncleanness as like eating unclean foods, pork and things like that. They're just basically like if you were with them, you might as well just be consider considered, you know, filthy. So this would have been the last person that Jesus or that this lawyer would have expected to show up in the story. It should have just been a, a generic person like, oh, yeah, 
Here's this person that is kind of like a nobody, just like the person who, uh, who was robbed. But what Jesus does is he brings in someone who is so, out far, uh, so far outside the expectations of this lawyer. He uses the Samaritan as a model to show here that anybody, anybody can be neighborly. Anybody can operate with this attitude. It's not, it's not something that comes by rights of, uh, of this racial caste, but rather it's by knowledge of God and obedience to him and hearing him. Even though the Jewish leaders despised, hated the Samaritans, Jesus says, even, even they can be neighbors. Even they can show compassion and kindness. Even they can have the sensitivity to meet needs and to act. And so Jesus describes the actions that the Samaritan takes uh, in verse 34. Stick with me. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So now we have uh, like five or six actions here that this guy um, undertakes on behalf of the Samaritan. He goes to him. He does the thing that the, that the priest and the Levite do not do. He binds up his wounds, right? So this guy's traveling. It's not like he's got like this like super first aid kit here, right? So what does this mean? It means he took his own garments and, and ripped them apart to, to bind this guy back together, to, to uh, stop bleeding, to pull together, you know, a, a splint or whatever it is that he needed to get this guy back on track. So he shreds his own clothes to, to make bandages for him. He engages uh, in cleaning the cuts with oil and wine. Uh, At this time, oil would have been something that they would have used to like soothe wounds and uh, wine uh, with kind of like a little bit of alcohol content would have acted as like an antiseptic uh, or disinfectant. And so uh, he took these things and used what he brought on the journey likely for uh, for a meal, for refreshments, food and wine and says, I'm going to, or oil and wine, I'm going to use this to, to clean this for this man. He takes the man and puts him on his own uh, animal which means that he probably had to walk, the, the Samaritan himself probably had to walk the rest of the way to uh, this inn. Then he takes him to this inn and provides comfort, provides care for him to this man he does not met. He doesn't just take him there and dump him off and is like deuces uh, because innkeepers did not have a good reputation and they certainly were probably not going to take good care of this man. So he stays the night and he ensures that this man is taken care of. He spends the night there, makes sure he's all squared away. The next day, he shows up uh, with the innkeeper, and he gives him two denarii, which would have been uh, considered two days' wages. Uh, but there were kind of special rules around, like, poor people and injured people. And so this would have, um, for those, basically, like, it would have gotten, it wouldn't got, it would have gotten divided up, uh, and you would have paid one-twelfth of a denarii for um for like the for the wage or for the um, for the stay of an injured person in an inn, 
So this guy essentially provides, in two denarii, he provides like 24 days worth of, of stays for this injured man to make sure that he's able to stay here. And not only that, he tells the innkeeper, if you have to spend more, spend more and I will pay you when I return. So he doesn't put the expectation on the injured man. Eventually he's going to recover and he'll be able to pay this off. He just comes out right and says like, whatever happens, like I'll cover it. Don't worry about it. Like, just make sure that he stays here. Uh, I've given you enough for 24 days worth of uh, stays that he can start to get better. When I come back and I check on him, I'm going to give you more money if he spent more. So this is uh, an entirely different approach. He doesn't expect this, uh, he doesn't expect this man who's injured to, um, to pay. He decides that he's going to pay. And he responds with this compassionate act. In giving of his own time, of his own energy. He, he gives of his own financial resources to meet the needs of this man. Now, Jesus responds back to this lawyer with the simple question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He asked this question, and he says, one of these people in the process wasn't a neighbor. They weren't a neighbor to them, but one became a neighbor. Right? That's kind of actually the wording that he uses there. Wasn't, like, he, he says, he became a neighbor or proved to be a neighbor. He's coming back and saying, don't have your preconceived notions as to what you think a neighbor is. It's not simply just someone that you can uh, be within uh, proximity of or somebody that you would say, oh, for sure, this person is, is a part of the family. But the obligation is, is not to see what can be avoided. The obligation is to act with what you have at the time that you have it. He's not asking these people, uh, the ask is not for like people to be like, okay, well, like I, I, I see this guy and now I'm going to like run back and, and go prepare stuff and come back and take care of this guy. It's just basically like, can you do, can you do something for this person with like what you have? Like it's, it's the lowest level of like being a neighbor that Jesus is asking for. Like if you have the ability at the time to do this, do it. He's, he's not saying like, okay, well, you've got to go off and have this great preparation and do all these things and return and make sure that you're the one who's meeting this need. It's just walking with eyes open to see what God is doing in that moment. And can you be a neighbor at that time? Can you be neighborly? Verse 37, here's the response. He said, the one who showed him mercy, right? So Jesus tells him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer responds. Notice this. Jesus says, hey, there's a guy who fell among robbers who 
needed help, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the guy who fell among robbers? So Jesus maintains consistency there with his phrasing. But in the midst of the story, Jesus presents three people, and he gives them names. We've got a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. But this lawyer is so prejudiced that he will not say, oh, it was the Samaritan. He won't even utter it. He says, um, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> he's just like digging in. He's like, he knows that he's got to answer this way, but he's going to like do the bare minimum even here. He doesn't say, oh, it was the Samaritan who was kind and compassionate. He just says, like the, the guy, the guy who showed him mercy. He is wrestling. He's fighting this even in his response. He has seen the point that Jesus is making. He's understood the knowledge, but he hasn't done it. He's understood what is right, what the law says, but he hasn't done it. Even in his response, he sees the correct answer, but refuses. He refuses to respond in a way that would humble him and say, all right, I know this is not how I thought it was going to go or not how I wanted it to go, but clearly you're right, Jesus. Clearly you should have your way. I was wanting it to go a different way. I was thinking it should go a different way. I was wanting to live my life. But here Jesus is calling him not just to recognize that he's calling him to action. You go and do likewise. He doesn't commend the knowledge. The guy had the knowledge all along. It's about the action. It's about the response. Earlier, he already knew what to do. He responded correctly, and Jesus was like, yeah, you've answered correctly. And he tells him there, go and do likewise. And again, he tells him the story, answers, asks him the question, the guy responds correctly, and then again, Jesus says, go and do likewise. This is about action. It's not about understanding. It's not about knowledge. It's not about knowing the right thing. It's about putting it into practice. This lawyer should be like, should be a neighbor. He should be like the Samaritan. At the heart of Jesus' message, love God, love neighbor. You can only love your neighbor if you are loving God correctly if you are relating to him correctly, heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you are pursuing him, if you are loving him with all that you are, with your emotions, with your consciousness, with your focus, with intention, with your drive and ambition, with your intelligence, with your uh, abilities, when you do that, you are able to love others. If you fail to love God, but you try to love others, it's not going to work. You're going to run out of energy, you're going to find the wrong opportunities, and it's going to be about yourself. That's just how it's going to work. Jesus tells us that we ought to love and serve that we have to do these things in a way that reflects our membership as a part of his family. 
He says that we ought to participate in these works that bring him glory. And our Father, who sees in secret, will reward us openly at his own time. We're not there for the approval, for the affirmation of others. We're not there to, to live a life that uh, makes it so that way we are glorified, but that other people see, oh, this is, this is who God's people are. They see his character. They see a glimpse of his heart and can respond to him. We're there as messengers. We're there to go forward and to continue this proclamation, the good news that the king is here. And he's working amongst his people. Remember, this sits in the middle of Jesus sending out these 70 plus, sits in this, these woes to these cities who, who hear but do not respond. Right? They have the knowledge, but they don't take action. The disciples going out and rejoicing in the wrong thing, having the knowledge, but missing the point. It's a call that we all have not to do good things, but to love God and just let those things flow out of us. Don't focus on trying to be a good neighbor. Focus on trying to love God and you will be a good neighbor. You will. It's inevitable. You can't not do it. Because he cares about people. He loves people. Love God, love people. All works out. So don't get focused on the wrong thing. Focus on the simple thing. And he's going to lead you into those other things. As you love him, you're going to love the things that he loves. And he really cares about people a lot. So you're going to get there. Okay? Don't worry about checking boxes. Worry about hanging out with Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness. We're grateful that you are so patient with us. Even when we can be hard of hearing uh, and not willing to understand what it is you're sharing with us. Um, sometimes it seems like you're speaking so clearly, but for whatever reason, we're still wanting to fight against you. We're trying to, we're like refusing to go your way and we're, maybe it's because there's other people in our lives who are like speaking into our ears and, and distracting us or confusing us or we're worried about what they're going to think. Well, Lord, it's, it's, it's your work. You, you care about us more than anyone else ever could. We don't have to be concerned about what you know about us because you know everything. And yet you still care and still love us and you welcome us into your family. And so, Lord, we rejoice that you've made that way and we want to come together this morning choosing you again, say that we love you and that we want to walk with you and that you would call us to be a part of, um, to be a part of your family. And so, Lord, work um, in our hearts this morning as we respond to you now. We love you. Amen.